uh, it's a little bit of a different way to go about this this morning, but we're going to jump around a lot through that. Uh, the reason I gave you that is we're going to talk today about uh, a common theme through the book of First Peter, and if you have been reading through this, uh, you've probably noticed that Peter talks about suffering in every single chapter in the book of First Peter. Every chapter he talks about suffering. Uh, and we're going to talk today about uh, suffering as God's people. Um, I think sometimes that's something that we want to avoid thinking of. That's something we want to avoid talking about. Uh, most of us spend our lives trying to avoid suffering at all costs. Uh, but today we're going to look at what uh, Peter has to say through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit about suffering as Christians. And if you just bear with me for a moment, I, I think it's very important to understand the history what was going on in the moments where Peter was writing this letter to the churches. Uh, because the first thing we have to understand is when he was writing about suffering, he was writing about suffering that most of us have no idea. We couldn't even imagine. So I think it's very important for us to understand the historical context, what was going on in that culture and in his immediate surroundings in the church in, in those moments. Uh, so Peter wrote his letter, if you go to First uh, Peter uh, chapter 1, just starting in verse 1. I don't, I don't think that I have some of these verses on that, uh, that insert that we gave you. But uh, he, he addresses the letter, he says in, in verse 1, he says, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, According to the foreknowledge of God the Father in the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and for the sprinkling with his blood, may grace, grace and peace be multiplied to you. So he's addressing it to the exiles, people scattered through Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. So all of those areas that he just listed there would be would have been uh, in what was Asia Minor at that time, modern-day Turkey. If you looked at the, the country of Turkey today, it's on the eastern end of the Mediterranean Sea at the top. Uh, all of those areas that he just listed there were spread throughout uh, modern-day Turkey. And what was happening at that time was uh, that whole area uh, from Rome, Spain, all of that area over uh, through uh, what is modern-day Turkey and down through Syria and Israel and then over through Egypt uh, and the countries west of there, that was all under the control of uh, the Roman Empire at the time. So they had conquered all of that area and everything was subject uh, to, to the, uh, uh, the Romans at that time. So that's all the people that he's writing to in that moment, Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, Bithynia. They were all under the control of the Roman Empire. So Peter's first letter that we're looking into here was written most likely around 64 A.D. or about 30 years after Christ's crucifixion. Uh, so the gospel message was spreading rapidly and the church uh, began to grow in great numbers in that time. We see that in the book of Acts. We see that the Bible says that God was adding to their number daily those who were being saved. The church was really growing in that time. Uh, they were also facing uh, persecution in that time. So 64 A.D. was about the time when Peter wrote this letter. But ten years before that, in 54 A.D., the Roman Emperor Nero came to power. Uh, so his... 
Uh, the previous emperor, Claudius, had married Nero's mother, Agrippina, and eventually adopted uh, Nero as his son. Uh, but this, this put Nero in line uh, to be the emperor, and he, he put him in line over his own son in that moment uh, where he adopted him. So uh, his mother, Agrippina, had such a desire to see Nero come to power that she eventually poisoned Claudius, uh, leading to his death. And at this point, it was in 54 AD that Nero uh, came to power. He was 16 or 17 at the time. Uh, he went on to be a, a brutal uh, a brutal emperor. He was known for his cruelty and his sexual perversion, uh, just things that most of us can't even begin to imagine. There's even accounts where he was, again, he was 16 or 17 years old at the time, and a lot of historians uh, have written about how at that time he would dress in normal clothes and he would go out through the, the Roman Empire and he would uh, vandalize things and, and uh, you know, damage things, steal things. And when they, the, you know, the, the guards, the, the, the Roman, uh, you know, whatever their police force or whatever it was would come to deal with the situation, they would see that he was the emperor and there was nothing they could do. Uh, so he was a very, very cruel man. Uh, in 64 A.D., uh, about the time that uh, Peter wrote his his letter to the churches, uh, the city of Rome was engulfed in a great fire. Uh, the fire lasted uh, about six days and then I think uh, kind of reignited again after the six days. But it destroyed a huge portion of the city. It was left in ruins. There was, there was nothing left. Uh, and most people within the Roman Empire, the citizens at that time, actually accused Nero, Nero of starting the fire himself. Uh, it can't be, you can't be sure. There are a lot of historians that uh, leave room for that possibility. There are a lot that say absolutely that didn't happen. There's no way to know. But in that, in that time, there's evidence that he came out very directly after the fire. He came out with plans for a huge palace for himself. Uh, so it seemed like he had this kind of in the works beforehand. I can't say for sure if he started the fire or if he didn't. Either way, uh, to kind of deflect the attention from himself in that moment, all of the citizens accusing him of starting the fire, he was looking for somebody to place the blame on. And in that moment, there was a group that was starting to rise up and become known in uh, all of the areas around, and that was the Christians. Uh, the Christians had been persecuted, uh, not just in that moment, but even before Nero came to power, the Christians had been uh, uh, persecuted. But in that moment, Nero looked on, and uh, the pagan religions in Rome at that time had uh, uh, really, they had uh, accused Christians of a lot of things because of, uh, you know, when they talked about... Uh, like taking uh, communion, they were talking about the blood and the body of Jesus. And they would accuse them of cannibalism at that time. Now the Christians were meeting in secret, so the public was to some extent just speculating about what they were doing. They were, they were meeting in, in uh, uh, secrecy because of the persecution that they faced. But that left the public to just kind of you know, speculate as to what they were doing. So the pagans came up with this idea that that's what they were doing was... Uh, cannibalism, and, and uh, they had something that was called the, the agape feast or the love feast, which according to the pagan religions at that time, there were a lot of uh, uh, kind of sexual ceremonies that were involved in pagan religions, so they accused them of some of those kind of perversions also. 
Uh, so Nero, in trying to deflect the attention away from himself, saw an easy target in the Christians in that moment because the public kind of had a disdain for them anyway. So it was easy for him to go in and just say, well, it was them. It was the Christians that started uh, this fire. So in that moment then, uh, Nero really kind of ramped up his uh, uh, his persecution against the Christians and uh, uh, he was kind of leading the way, then leading the charge in persecution again to deflect attention from himself. Uh, but there are uh, many, many accounts of the Christians, the, the ones to whom Peter was writing in this moment, he would have seen these things. He was in the midst of what was going on or the persecution of Nero in these moments. He's writing his letter to the churches that are scattered. And he's looking on and seeing Nero who's bringing uh, Christians in and he's crucifying them. Or he's bringing Christians in uh, who will not deny Christ and he's uh, they would they would uh, cover them with tar and they would burn them on stakes. Nero would burn them on stakes for light in his garden. Uh, or he would dress them in animal skins and throw them to wild animals to be uh, killed that way. Um, it is widely held that Peter was martyred by crucifixion under Nero's rule. Uh, the church historian Eusebius uh, wrote, that Paul had been executed at the command of Nero. Uh, So when Peter wrote his letter under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he was well aware of what suffering meant. When he wrote in every single chapter of his first letter to the churches, he was writing from experience. He was writing from something that most people, especially in America, can't even imagine. He was seeing his friends, the people that accepted Christ, he was seeing them burned on a stake or crucified, or thrown to wild animals. He was seeing this. He was knowing that he was probably headed for the same thing. So that is the context then when we are talking about suffering. The first thing that we have to know is that we are not, we are not hearing somebody who was God's apostle who just sat in some far removed place and wrote all these uh, nice thoughts to Christians about how they should endure things whenever they face persecution. This was a guy who was standing in the midst of it. He was seeing these things on a daily basis, and he was uh, facing that uh, in himself, uh, knowing, I'm, I'm sure he knew that he was headed for the same, uh, you know, his, his demise was coming at the hands of Nero or some other Roman cause at that point. So it's important that we understand that uh, when Peter was writing this, he was well aware of what suffering meant. Uh, But we're going to look at, uh, first of all, uh, what Peter says about the reality of Christian uh, suffering. And on on your paper that you have, uh, you should have 1 Peter chapter 4. We're just going to look at verse 12. he says, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. Do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange was happening to you. And what a way to, to address the people that uh, are in the midst of this suffering. Do not be surprised if this comes upon you as though something strange were happening to you. And I think one of the things that we have to do as Christians is understand that we're not immune to suffering. 
Accepting Christ doesn't remove us from the possibility of suffering. Accepting Christ doesn't put us in some place where all of a sudden we're immune to all the cares of the world and we're beyond facing uh, trials and temptations and afflictions, sickness and all of those kind of things. Now, there are places that you will go where people will tell you that as a Christian you shouldn't be sick. God doesn't want anybody to be sick. That is absolutely not true in any way. There is no evidence for that whatsoever in the Word of God. Uh, the Bible says that we will face afflictions and, and, and struggles uh, and trials. Uh, and, and there's a lot more evidence for that. Um, where we can't get into all that today. But uh, what I'm saying is Peter is saying just because you are a Christian, don't be surprised when suffering comes on you. Don't be surprised as if something were strange were coming on you because, number one, we live in a fallen world. This is the nature of the world that we live in. It is fallen. It is, it is a place of suffering. It is a place of, a place of pain. It is a, a place of sorrow. I mean, Christ said himself, he said in John 16.33, he said, I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace in the world. Uh, in the world you have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. He's saying to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation. So uh, the, the tribulation that he's talking about is not just persecution in these moments, but he's talking about any kind of affliction or trial that we may face. Uh, he's saying that you may have peace in me. In this world you will have trouble, but in me you will find peace. And that's what we have to understand as Christians is that when suffering comes, when we face trials and difficulties, or things that burden us, our first reaction should be to fix our eyes on Christ, because that is where we find peace. We're going to face the trials. We're going to face the sorrows. We're going to face pain. It's going to come. And we talked a few weeks ago about how Peter, in the King James Version, he said in verse uh, chapter 1, verse 13, he said, Gird up the loins of your mind, be sober, and hope to the end for the grace that is to be brought to you the revelation of Christ. He says, gird up the loins of your mind. And if you remember, as we talked about, that was talking about the reference to a robe that was so long. And when they would go to some sort of physical activity, gird up the loins meant to pull up the loose ends of your robe and tie it up so that you're ready. Tie it up so that you're ready for physical action uh, or for some sort of labor. That's what he's saying. That's when he was talking about gird up the loins of your mind. He's saying, be prepared. I think it's in the NIV. It says, be prepared for action. So he is saying that we as Christians better be prepared for action because there are terrible things going on around us. Number one, there are things that are going to come upon us that are difficult. We're going to face something. He's saying, gird up the loins of your mind because you are going to face something. It's going to happen. The worst thing that we can do as Christians is to sit back and be passive because at some moment, something is going to come on you, and then we don't know what to do about it. Because we have no relationship with Christ. We know nothing of the depths of who He is. We know nothing of the peace that is in Him, because we haven't been cultivating that within our hearts. We haven't been cultivating a relationship with Him. And as we have a relationship with Christ, we begin to know Him more and more. And as we begin to know Him more and more, we understand the peace that is available in Him. The point is that I need to prepare myself now for the suffering that's going to come. Because it's going to come. There's not one of us that's sitting here that isn't going to face it. It's going to happen at some point. You're going to face something that is a trial or some sort of pain or some sort of sorrow. It's going to come. 
And we will do well to remember, as Peter said, do not be surprised when the fiery trial comes as though something strange were happening to you. Don't be surprised about it. But see, we have that backwards sometimes today. We don't prepare ourselves at all, and then something comes and we throw our hands in the air and say, I have no idea what to do. Where's God? You don't see Him because you haven't been preparing yourself. You haven't been girding up the loins of your mind. You haven't been prepared for action in Christ. Cultivating a relationship with Him that when the fiery trial comes, I can stand my ground in Him because I've already been built up in Him. I don't wait for the moment of a trial to begin being built up in Christ. I am built up now, and when I face that trial, I am able to stand in Him. So we have to understand the reality of Christian suffering is that we are not immune from suffering. I know that's a simple thing, but too many times we spend our lives trying to avoid it rather than understanding through the power of God, I can walk through it in peace. We shouldn't spend our lives trying to avoid the things that are inevitable, but being built up in Him so that we can walk through it in His power. Uh, so that takes us to, we have to then understand the necessity of trust in suffering. First uh, Peter chapter 2, starting in uh, verse 21. Uh, he was talking in this moment, he was talking specifically to slaves, but it still applies to us in everything that we face on a daily basis. But he was talking, about, he was talking to slaves and saying, you know, you were blessed. What good is it if you... If you continue to do good and endure, uh, though you do something, he's talking about if you do something wrong and face uh, suffering as a result of that, that, that means nothing. But if you do good and you suffer in spite of that, that you are blessed in the eyes of God. And that's where he picks it up then. He says in verse 21, he says to the slaves, uh, for this, to this you have been called, doing the good in spite of suffering. For this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example, so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to the one who judges justly. So Christ suffered for us, leaving an example that we should follow in his, in his steps. Uh, the Bible says that we should have the same mind as Christ. Philippians chapter 2 talks about us having the same mind as Christ. That though he was in the image of God, he didn't count that as anything, but he suffered even to death on the cross. And the point that he is getting at here is I don't have to respond trying to defend myself. I don't have to respond uh, just trying to... to uh, um, overcome all of the things around me because in the moment where I am facing suffering, I am entrusting myself to the God who judges justly. Now, if that comes in the form of somebody persecuting me, somebody uh, bearing a false witness or whatever it is, uh, I understand that my first reaction, my default position is to entrust myself to the God who judges justly because there is going to be a day where everything is revealed where everything, everybody stands before God and everything is made known. I don't have to defend myself. My default position is to trust God in my suffering. Now that goes even with sickness or anything that we face. The point is uh, that I would entrust myself to the God who cares for me. That's the overall point we're making here. 
is that Christ, in the midst of suffering, in the midst of being spit on, beaten, uh, enduring a constant verbal attack from, think about it, the, the, the perspective of, of Christ who uh, also was God, standing, seeing these mere humans uh, assaulting him verbally and knowing, what are your words? But he endured that for our sakes. He endured that because of his, uh, his, uh, him moving towards entrusting himself to the God who judges justly. So in spite of all the things going on around him, he entrusted himself to God, uh, knowing that he would judge uh, justly. He didn't retaliate. He didn't respond with any threat. And the amazing thing is even in the midst of that, he cried out for the forgiveness of those who were uh, bringing all of this on him. In that moment where he's on the cross, he said, Father, forgive them for they don't know what they do. The Bible says we should have the same mind as Christ. The same mind as Christ, the one who was beaten on, suffered all of these things in the midst of that and them, them persecuting him in that way and nailing him to a cross and enduring all of this pain and agony. He would think to say, Father, forgive these people. They don't know what they're doing. We should have the same mind as Christ. He was able to do that because of the trust he had in the Father. Because of the justice of the Father. Because of the goodness of the Father. Because of all that he is. Knowing that everything that was happening in the earth at that moment eventually was going to come to the place where the Father was going to make a judgment on it. So the point is, as Christians, when we inevitably endure suffering... Whatever kind it is, whether it's persecution, whether it's sickness, whether it's pain or loss of loved one, whatever it is, we endure that because of our eyes fixed on God, being built up in relationship with Him so that we can then walk through whatever is to come. Uh, we entrust ourselves to Christ as the Good Shepherd, knowing that He has endured suffering for our sake. Uh, I can't remember who said it now, but he said... Uh, if we can trust if we can trust Christ in his suffering for our sake then we should be able to trust him in our suffering for his sake if we believe that Christ has redeemed us made a way for our salvation through his suffering through his agony through all of that if we believe that we trust him with our our very soul for eternity if we trust him for that we should be able to trust him in walking through suffering for him that means keeping my eyes fixed on Him as I walk through suffering. Knowing that suffering produces in me, as we're going to talk about a little bit, suffering produces in me a greater degree of the glory of God being worked in me. But we'll talk about that in a moment here. Then uh, we talk about uh, the necessity of trust in suffering, but then the effect of endurance in suffering. First Peter 1, uh, starting in verse 3. It says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope uh, through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. And He says, In this you rejoice. What does he mean? In what are you rejoicing? You're rejoicing in the living hope, the resurrection of Christ, the inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and, and unfading that's kept in heaven, that we are guarded by God's power. That is what we rejoice in. We rejoice in that. Verse 6, in this re you rejoice, 
Though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved in various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Christ. So we rejoice in all that God has made available to us in Christ, even though for this moment we might be grieved with various trials. We rejoice in the hope that is in Christ, knowing that there is going to be a day where we step into all of that, the fulfillment of all of it. Now we walk in the, the peace of Christ today. We have the blessings of God. We, we have the ability to walk in those things today. The Bible says that the kingdom of God is not a matter of eat and drink, but of righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. As I enter into the kingdom of God, as I am saved and become a member of the kingdom of God, I am able to walk in that righteousness, peace, and joy to some degree in this world. But there is going to be a day where I step into that final reward and see the fullness of all of those things. I see the fullness of joy. I see the fullness of peace. I see the fullness of God's reign and who He is. I see Him face to face. Everything that is I experience in some degree today, uh, I will see at some point in, full, in its fullness in the presence of God. So the point is that we rejoice in all of those things that are stored up for us in Christ because this suffering that we face for today is for a moment. And eventually it's all going to go away. And I will stand in the presence of God and see in the fullness of all that He has available, all that He is. I will see all of that as it is. Uh, so we rejoice that we may face trials and sufferings. Uh, understanding that we can be built up in the joy of God in the midst of sorrow. Romans 5, starting in verse 1, says, Therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through uh, our, Lord, our Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, I think the first thing that we have to understand as Christians is that that should be enough in itself. He said, Since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. That should be the number one thing of all the things that we are searching for in this world. It should be peace with God. Fellowship with God that comes through peace that was made available through Christ. You understand that we, the reason that Christ needed to come is because we had broken fellowship. Our fellowship with God. They, Adam and Eve walked with God in the garden. They saw Him. They talked to Him. They were with Him. They had communion and fellowship with Him. And they broke that. The fellowship was broken and therefore peace was broken. And God had to judge humanity in that. The peace and fellowship was broken. And he's saying here, Romans 5, starting verse 1, he says, you've been justified through faith and now we have peace with God through Lord, uh, our Lord Jesus Christ. So the first thing that we understand is the midst of suffering is that, number one, I have peace with God. That should mean something to us. That I have peace with God in the midst of whatever suffering I face in the world. I have peace with God. That I have fellowship again with Him. I have communion with Him. It has been restored. That fellowship has been restored by the sacrifice of Christ on the cross. And I have peace again. And then verse 2, uh, Romans chapter 5, 2, he says, uh, uh, Our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have gained access by faith into His grace in which we now stand. And we boast in the hope of the glory of God. Not only so, but we also glory in our sufferings because we know that suffering produces perseverance, perseverance, character, and character, hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit 
that has been given to us. So suffering eventually leads us through perseverance to godly character and out of his, out of this greater and greater hope. And the result is the overwhelming nature of God's sacrificial love being poured into our hearts. Understanding that as I walk through trials and difficulties, it has the potential, depending on my focus, it has the potential to build up in me perseverance in character and in greater and greater measure then I gain more and more hope with my eyes fixed on Christ. I gain, I gain a greater and greater vision of the hope that is off in the distance to me that I will step into and see again in its fullness. You see, that means something to you in the moment that you were saved. But sometimes for us, we've been around the church a lot of a long time, and sometimes it starts to lose its meaning, Right? Because sometimes we can come to a place where we've heard these things a million times and it's just repetition. We just hear things. But you see, when you are able to be built up in Christ and you walk through suffering, there is something that God does in suffering. There is a different way that God interacts with His people who keep their eyes fixed on Him in the midst of suffering. And when you do that, He builds up in you perseverance to walk through it in His strength. And He builds your character Then he builds your hope, giving you, again, greater and greater visions of who he is. But it's only as we keep our eyes fixed on him walking through suffering that his mercies, I believe, are poured out in greater and greater greater measure. I believe absolutely, and we'll talk about this in a second. I'll show you some verses that uh, kind of show this, but I believe without a doubt that God's mercies are poured out in greater measure on his children when they walk through something, keeping their eyes fixed on Him, as opposed to just everything's great. And I just kind of lose the fire within me. God's mercy is poured out on those who, who say, you know, this situation I am facing leaves me in agony. It has ripped me down to nothing, but I will keep my eyes fixed on God. And if I stumble in this, I will get up and continue walking towards Him. And God honors that. And He builds your character. He builds your hope. And we understand and see Him in greater ways through that. 2 Corinthians 4.17 says, For this late momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. He's saying whatever we face in this world, however much agony it it builds within our hearts, it is a momentary, light momentary affliction compared to to the eternal weight of glory that is being prepared for us in heaven. So he's saying that all that we face in this world, we walk through it knowing that this is just a moment. And I don't want to reduce some of the things that people have been... Some people have been through some terrible, terrible things. Some people have seen terrible things. Some people have had terrible things happen to them. Just by the nature of being in this world, some people have had terrible things to happen to them perpetrated by other people. I understand that. I am not in any way trying to minimize that, but I believe that the heart of God is extended to people who have been in those situations who will fix their eyes on Him and walk through that with Him. He hurts with people who have been hurt that way, and He will walk with you through that. But to see this, to to have that, as he said, the eternal weight of glory that is being built up for us, we realize that as in the midst of that suffering, and again, agony, where I say, I have no 
strength left. I have nothing because of all this stuff that has happened, but I will keep my eyes fixed on God and allow Him to be strong in my weakness. You understand that God does, God's not asking you to be strong. That's not what He's asking of us as Christians. He's asking us to keep our eyes fixed on Him. Then He gives us strength. We don't have to be. We can be weak. You understand our greatest strength in any way, it's, it means nothing in context of the spiritual world. It means nothing. I have no strength to overcome the attacks of Satan myself. I don't have that power. Neither do you. But the point is keeping my eyes fixed on God. And as I do that, then He builds in me strength through His Spirit. Uh, endurance through Christ in suffering increases our spiritual vision. When Stephen was about to be uh, stoned, he, he was in front of all the, the uh, Jewish leaders and he went into this long uh, narrative telling them all the things from the beginning, how God had worked in their people and he brought them to this moment of saying, uh, uh, and then here was Christ and you were the ones who crucified him. This is what God was pointing to all along and Christ was here and then you all crucified him. And in Acts chapter 7, starting in verse 54, uh, it says, Now when they heard, the, the Jewish leaders and, and the, the, the Israelites at that moment, now when they heard these things, they were enraged. And they ground their teeth at him. But he, meaning Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, Behold, I see the heavens open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. Now think about that in the moment again, that this man had just, he, he was brought before the leaders uh, in this moment and the Israelites knowing that they weren't going to like what he had to say. They weren't going to like that at all. But he spoke with boldness. He spoke for the glory of God. He spoke about who God was, entrusting himself to the one who judges righteously. And in that moment, they drag him out to stone him. And what happens? God opens up his vision and he sees a vision of the Son of Man standing at the right hand of the Father. And the point of that is, again, that there is something that God does in the person enduring suffering for his sake, keeping their eyes fixed on him. There is something that God opens up in us, the person who walks through it in the strength of God. There is something greater, greater visions of heaven, greater visions of God, greater visions of Christ, greater visions of the spiritual world going on around us. All of these things I believe that God gives us in greater measure as we walk with Him, as we are willing in the midst of persecution, as we are willing in the midst of sickness or pain or whatever it is, to stand before men and say, I will not turn my eyes away from God. I will keep them fixed on Him and walk with Him. And in that, God will give you greater and greater visions of who He is. You see, we have to understand that uh, I was listening to uh, Ravi Zacharias this week. He was talking about uh, suffering. And he said that uh, the answers to suffering in life are sometimes beyond propositional. The answers come in a relationship. Meaning that the answers that we're looking for about suffering and life and all of these things, it's beyond a concept. It's beyond a theory. It's beyond somebody giving you some sort of, uh, you know, written out, uh, uh, theory of why these things happen. It's, it's beyond us 
looking and saying, you know, because of this and because of this, then here's why suffering happens. It's beyond that. It's beyond a concept or idea. The, the, what makes sense of all these things is a relationship with a person, meaning Christ. There's a book I love to read by uh, a guy named Malcolm Muggeridge, and he, he said in that, he said, Christ is the coherence of all human experience. And that's what Ravi Zacharias is talking about. It's not, we're not talking about concepts and ideas here. We're talking about the answers are in a person. Christ, the coherence of all human experience, means that everything that I face makes sense in the person of Christ. Every single thing that a human being deals with in this life is made sense of in Christ. The suffering that we face, why do we endure that? Christ suffered more suffering. Christ endured more suffering than we could even imagine. So he has walked through it. It begins to make sense in him because I am entrusting myself then to the person who judges the God who judges everything justly in suffering all the things, all the misfortunes, all the things that uh, have been perpetrated on other people by men. They will eventually stand before God and it will be made right. It will be revealed. Suffering only makes sense in Christ. You understand, outside of God, outside of Christ, suffering means nothing. If we don't have, if God doesn't exist, then what what do we have? You and I are a matter of time plus matter plus chance. Given enough time, given some matter, and given enough chances, eventually humans would form. That's the idea. Outside of God doesn't exist, that's all we are. You and I are just chemicals fizzing in a mind. When I speak to you, it's just from the chemicals fizzing in my mind. When you speak, it's the same thing. So what are our words? It's meaningless. What does it matter if somebody perpetrates something on somebody else? Because you're just, a, you're just time plus matter plus chance. What does it matter? It doesn't matter. There will be somebody else just like you. But you see, that's not the biblical worldview. If God exists, then things are drastically different than that. If God exists, then He breathed His life into Adam. The Bible says He breathed His own life into Adam. Of all the things in creation, man is the only thing that said God created in His own image and breathed His life into them. And we go on, then God sent His Son. That's the thing in all this suffering. We wonder why, why has God allowed suffering? How does He feel about all these things? God has not removed Himself from suffering, but He left His place in heaven to endure suffering for our sake. He's not removed from suffering. And in all of that, God breathing His, his life into the one creation that was created in His image, and Him sending His Son to suffer for uh, the, the one thing in creation that bore His image, in that we see the intrinsic value of human beings, meaning that you cannot in any way, there is no way to, to relate to other human beings and not understand them with having value. And I love Ravi Zacharias says it this way. He says that uh, you know that uh, anytime somebody talks about evil, it is either brought up by a person or it is about a person. That means that evil, the, the discussion of evil exists only in the realm of human beings. How we go in the ocean, we see a shark eat a seal or something. We don't talk about that as evil. 
But when we see a human being do something to another human being, we talk about that as evil. That means that human beings in themselves, because of God, are valuable. It has to be. There's no other explanation for it. Because evil doesn't exist outside the realms of humanity in itself. And what I'm saying to you is that the God of heaven looks on His creation that has that much value And he could have left us. He had every reason to leave us in our suffering by ourselves. He had every reason to do that. But he left his place in heaven to step into the midst of suffering and take it on himself. Not only the suffering he endured in that moment, but it says that he took on the sin. The weight of our sin was upon him. The Bible says that he was a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. That is our Savior. Man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. So when you walk through something, know that number one, you have value because the God of heaven left his place in heaven to walk through your suffering with you. He was acquainted with grief and sorrow for you and I. And whatever we endure, we can walk through through his power, his abiding presence, and the peace that comes from having peace with him, restored fellowship with him. Um, the worship team is going to come up as we begin to close. You see, we have to gain a greater and greater vision of who God is in order to be able to walk through these things. We have to understand God for who He actually is, not, uh, not, not a God who has been reduced to manageable terms. I say that. A.W. Tozer said that left to himself, man will immediately reduce God to manageable terms. That when we have removed ourselves from the pursuit of God through His Word and His Spirit, I will take Him from His place in heaven and make Him something that I can manage. That is just the natural uh, instinct of man is to manage things. And we create a God that we can manage. But to be able to walk through suffering, we have to understand God as He, as he is. As a God who transcends everything in this earth, everything in this world. A God who is so far beyond us. A God whose thoughts are beyond our thoughts. A God whose justice is more pure than we can even imagine. And out of that, then, we understand a God who would say to his people in Isaiah 43, he said, But now this is what the Lord says, He who created you, O Jacob, he who formed you, O Israel, fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have summoned you by name. You are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And when you pass through the rivers, you will not, they will not sweep over you. When you walk through the fire, you will not be burned. The flames will not set you ablaze, for I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. When you walk through the fires, you will not be burned. But see, when you walk through those fires, you do that with your eyes fixed on Christ, allowing Him to lead you through that. I'm not saying you do that with, with overwhelming happiness. We're not going to be happy in the midst of those situations, but I can still experience the joy of the Holy Spirit and the abiding presence in the midst of sorrow. One of the biggest things I want 
you'd understand in this as again, I am not reducing uh, the sufferings of mankind to something that it's not. Some of us haven't experienced a crazy amount of suffering in life. Others have experienced things constantly through life. Constant suffering. God wants to walk through you with that. In the midst of that. Not saying it's going to be easy. But the abiding presence of Christ in your life, fixing your eyes on Him, will store up for you a greater and greater measure of glory. And your visions of God will be greater and greater. Your understanding of Him will be greater and greater. And you will experience then more and more peace as you walk with Him. God, we thank You today for the opportunity to be together, to look into Your Word. Father, we thank You for our Savior, our Savior who, uh, Your Word says, is a man of sorrow, acquainted with grief. Because we know that He is all of those things that He experiences sorrows and His grief for our sake. Father, that's truly humbling today to know that in the midst of everything that we deal with, all the sufferings of this life, all of the pain and sorrow, the agony of this life, that You have not kept Yourself distant from us, but You walked through every bit of that with us as You left Your place in heaven. And not only did You walk through that in that moment as Christ was on earth, but You walked through it with us now. Father, give us peace today. Give us strength to keep our eyes fixed on You. Give us discipline to prepare ourselves for all of the trials that are to come. That we wouldn't count it strange when those things come, but we would be prepared for action in You. Father, we love You today. It's Your name we pray. Amen.